Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal. I'm going to be pitching in from time to time this year to sub for your usual host, Lee Rawls. And I'm happy to say I'm joined today by novelist Martin Clark, whose last book, The Substitution Order, came out in 2019. Hi, Martin, and thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for the invite. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about your career and your most recent legal thriller, The Substitution Order. But before I do that, I should note that you, you're you a retired circuit court judge from Virginia. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I worked um, 28 years. It seems like about 60 sometimes. I started when I was 32 and I quit when I was 59. So you're actually one of the youngest judges to be appointed and when you took the bench back then when you were 32, right? I was. That's sort of an ephemeral honor. <laughs> it's not going to last forever. Yeah, but that's true. And so um, a lot of our listeners would like to know, I'm sure, about how you made the leap from judge to best-selling novelist. So I guess I'll start there. How did you break into novel writing in the industry? I started writing. A lot of folks ask about why do you write? And for me, I just really enjoy it. Everybody, I think, has different interests. And for me, I mean, people like collecting stamps, playing golf, playing baseball, who knows what. And I just enjoyed writing. I began when I was in college. In fact, my first novel was published in 2000. And there's some riffs in that book that I actually wrote at Davidson College years and years before. You know, you and I talked briefly in another context, and it took me 20 years to get published, two decades. And that's, I think, a testament to how much I actually enjoy writing. When you get up every day and you write and you go to that world, and you have an agent and the manuscript sent out and it comes hurtling back with another rejection, you darn sure have to like what you're doing to keep doing it. And so you got a lot of rejection letters then before you made that breakthrough. And I should also ask, what was the name of your first novel so we can add that to the show notes? It's called The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living. And um, it, it actually, given it, despite the title, it is also a legal book. And yeah, I I worked um, every day. I had an agent. I really enjoyed doing it. And, and I got 20 years of rejection letters. Now, I'm always amazed when I see writers now, folks who sort of give up after, you know, you, you, you write a book and, and it gets turned down maybe after a couple of submissions and you give up. And I always tell folks it's a long Byzantine journey between, you know, that first written word and the, and the bound published book. And one of the things I do, and, and, and I brought along one today, I always vowed my, my friend Charles Wright and I were law school roommates. I said, you know, Charlie, if I ever get published, I'm going to keep these rejection letters and, and I'm going to read them. And you cannot imagine just how, and maybe this was decades ago, just how vitriolic and mean-spirited some folks could be. And I just brought one, and this is a favorite, and I will read it for you. It is dated January 24, 1983. It is from Ruth Cantor, literary agent. It is so old that it is typewritten on a manual typewriter. If you hold it to the light, you can see the white out. And some of the words that she wanted to emphasize are underscored. And think how hard that would be back in the day. I think with the manual keyboard, you had to backspace and then pound in that underscore mark. Uh, here's the letter. Dear Martin Clark, you seem to have proved that you can write wittily and amusingly about just anything and everything that enters your head. What you have not, and that is underscored, what you have not proved is that you can write a novel. 
I read five pages and wondered if you'd ever been scared by a performing flea, read 10 more and developed a severe case of vertigo, spot checked through the balance of the manuscript, and I could discover no improvement. So I have no choice but to pass on this. People just won't put up with this sort of nonsense anymore, and editors know it. <laughs> that, that's really that's really harsh. And um, I should ask, like, when you get those kind of letters, did it ever make you want to give up, or was your just passion so strong for writing fiction that you you just persevered? Well, they're pretty discouraging. I'll tell you that I, I never want. As I say, I, I enjoy doing it, and and it's not like. I didn't have a you know a day job at some point, so it became something I enjoyed doing. And I always like to say I'm not bitter about. It. Don't think I'm bitter just because I have these letters, you know, years and years later that I've kept and 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 I'm carrying around with me and uh, a little man mad at the world. But yeah, it wasn't the greatest thing in the world. It certainly didn't um, it didn't make you feel good about uh, what you were doing. Um, my my wife and I just went to the um, the sort of tricked up Van Gogh exhibit. Are you familiar with that? Yes, yes, I believe they they were doing that in Chicago too, a similar thing. Yeah, and and it was interesting. One of the things that, and I'll paraphrase this, he said, to be successful at your work, you need to be well paid, you need to be well housed, well fed, you need to have an occasional good time and smoke your pipe, and, and you need to drink your coffee in peace. So getting rejection letters really doesn't fit into that scheme. <laughs> and and um, so what about the actual breakthrough? Um, how life-changing was that? And, and I should ask, were you a judge at that point when you finally got your breakthrough? I was. I was working as a judge and um, my agent called and said, we think we have a buyer. And, and that was Gary Fiskajon at Knopf. And that's the major leagues. And Gary was a major league editor. And I sold the book, The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living, to Knopf, and it was published in 2000. And what was life-changing was that not soon, but a while after it was published, Dwight Garner, who's a critic for the New York Times, read the book and just loved it. And the New York Times did a piece on the book and on me. They, they actually sent a photographer to... Patrick County, Virginia, where I live, took my photo in the backyard with the cur dog and the bare spots in my yard. And suddenly the novel that I literally could not give away is everywhere. And great reviews, great sales, movie options, you know, the whole nine yards. And my agent used to tell me it just takes one. And that's sort of the story of the business. It just takes one person to really like it, to publish it, and two or three good reviews in the right place will get you where you need to go. And so you got a movie option. Uh, there, is there anything on in the works on that? Was it ever adapted, turned into a movie or TV show? It's been optioned three, four, five times. It has never been made. And the, the current book is, is also optioned. Um, substitution orders option. Legal Limit was optioned to Paramount, CBS Paramount, but nothing's ever been made. And so I also understand that you um, you were able to take the money you got from the book, right, and, and use it for one of your causes. Is, is that right? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a very diplomatic and generous way to put what happened. After all the frustration and failures, when I heard from my agent that there was a solid chance I was going to sell the book, I made this sort of on-the-spot deal with God. And that deal was if you'll let this book be published, and all I ever wanted was to see it published, 
All I ever wanted to see was it on a bookshelf somewhere, you know, walk in your local independent bookstore and there it is. Then I will give all the money to my local church, Stuart Presbyterian Church. So I'm thinking that it's going to be five or 10 grand, right? Because it's a first fiction novel by nobody. And so then the book landed really well and took off. And um, not because I'm a really good person or not because I'm beneficent, but because I was scared. I mean, you do not want to cut the margins on that deal, do you? I mean, I don't need boils and pustules. So I gave every penny from that book to the church, um, six figures. Not because... (laughs) (laughs) Not because I'm a great person, because I was afraid not to. And being a lawyer and one step away from a Pharisee and a Sadducee, I asked my minister at the time, I said, the book, what about the movie rights, the audio? Do I have to give that up as well? (laughs) (laughs) And, And subsequent to that, I thought I should do something along. I never figured I'd write more books. So we, we have set up a foundation in my, um, my dad's name and, and, and a lot of the money from my writing uh, goes to that. And our big focus, we like dogs, uh, pets. We, we've created a um, basically a slow kill shelter here in Patrick County for pets. And, and I should, um, since the Modern Law Library, we, we do look at individual books. I, I should talk to you about your uh, most recent novel, The Substitution Order, which um, came out in 2019. The story is kind of about a down-on-his-luck lawyer in Virginia who, um, he gets disbarred, doesn't he? And he kind of finds himself targeted yeah. by insurance scammers. I know there's an interesting story behind this. What was kind of the spark for this novel? And sorry, does that premise kind of sum it up, the story? Would you like to add to that? It does. Yeah. I'm the so-called John Irving question. I am terrible. People ask me, what are your books about? And and I can't really tell you, I'm not good at that. I'm, I would be terrible in Hollywood trying to pitch novels, but that's a really nice summary. That That's pretty much what it's about. And the book had its genesis in, in an actual court case that I had. And, and I will try to be quick about this case. Um, I had a defendant who was charged with a awful, horrific, sexual abuse crime involving his young stepson. The defendant had confessed, and um, the confession was actually on tape. It wasn't just a typewritten statement. So you could hear his voice and his accepting blame for what he had done for molesting a young child. And he pled not guilty in Patrick County, Virginia, where I live, and caught a jury trial that would be the last thing you want to do is go in front of a Patrick County, Virginia jury on a sexual abuse case. But he did. And, and the Commonwealth attorney played the video, played the audio, excuse me, and, and you heard him confess. And, and the victim testified and was compelling and unimpeached. And, and we're all thinking, why in the world? Why did this happen? What is this guy doing? He had a good lawyer, public defender, had an excellent lawyer. And he called him, put him on the stand, went through the preliminaries, and he asked the guy, asked the defendant, everybody is wondering why you're here. You have pled not guilty. We heard the the complaining witness, and, and we heard your confession. And this is what the guy said. He said, I love my stepson, and I'm concerned about him. I was worried that because he had reported to the police something that I had done, And he had told the police his story that if I didn't accept responsibility and confess, that he would be charged with making a false statement to the police. And the jury, in unison, 
turned around to look at me as if to say, make him stop lying, quit lying. The jury stayed out maybe 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, found him guilty, gave him a couple of extra years for wasting their time and lying. And we were done. I went back into my office and my new administrative assistant at the time said, you know, I know that was untrue. We know that was just a baroque lie. But do you ever worry about someone pushing all the wrong buttons? Do you ever worry about someone telling you what you've heard a million times and it happens to be true? And how will you ever know? And that is what the substitution order is about. It is about a lawyer who understands as he walks down this path that everything he says and everything he does is going to be construed as evidence of his guilt. And he is left with his own skills and his his own talents to try to get out of that morass. Well, um, on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back. I'm with our guest novelist and retired judge, Martin Clark. Martin, yeah, I should ask you a little bit about the hero, Kevin Moore. What can you tell our listeners about the hero? Because I, I really enjoyed the book, by the way, and I found him really compelling, but also quite flawed as a character. I think the trick as a writer is to give readers a character they like and that you can root for, despite his flaws, his downfall. They come about because of his poor decisions. But I like to think that most people will will root for him and wish him well. You've read the book, and, and I am really, really proud of the ending. And I don't mean to sound vainglorious, but I think it's an ending that, that most people will not see coming. And it, I like to think it's a real ending. It's sort of bittersweet. And he is a good guy who made a mistake and is able to sort of overcome it in the final analysis. And um, one of the more vivid passages in the book, one of the things that kind of gripped me early on, Kevin has a stroke. And mm. I guess when you talk to writers a lot of time, fiction kind of intersects with stuff that's happened in their lives. So so can you talk a little bit about that? Um, because it was so vivid, the detail in that passage, and it kind of really gripped me. Well, what's the line, write what you know? I had done 30 or 40 pages of the substitution order, 
And I had interviewed my friend, Nick Capreas, he's a physician. And I'd asked him about heart attacks and, and how, you know, the feeling, what would happen. And, and I'm sitting at home and I had a stroke and I almost died. It was just a horrible, debilitating stroke. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty, <laughs> I have a real good sense of what it's like to have a stroke. So I was able, once I recovered, which was fairly miraculous, I was able to, I just, I have no need to write about a heart attack uh, when, when I can tell you exactly what a stroke's like. I, I like to say that I can, t the one thing I can tell you, and, and, and I think this comes through in the book, that brushing against ruin, despite what college philosophy professors might tell you, or Greek tragic poets, brushing against ruin doesn't make you any smarter, any brighter. Almost dying did not make me any more insightful. It just makes you a little bit selfish. You know, you determined to do just what you damn well please with what you have left. And, and that's sort of been my philosophy. And did that play into your career? By that point, you were already this was your fifth novel, right? Yes. So, so how did it change you and your focus on life? Well, it, it just makes you, it, it sounds trite and it sounds almost like a cliche, but you just don't want to waste time. And, you know, I just decided that I was going to do what I wanted to do. I mean, it makes you selfish. It, 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 there's a sense if you read classic literature, if you read Euripides or something like that, the tragedy makes you profound and insightful and you really learn from it. I'm not sure that you do. In my case, it just made me embrace the things I liked more. I don't, I don't feel any different than I was before, other than I have a sense of urgency from time to time. And another thing that kind of struck me about the, the book was how you weave in the legal details. And one thing that's kind of striking, too, is that the, the antagonist in the story kind of shows up early, right? The insurance scammer. But then he's kind of gone for pretty much the, the rest of the book. And I thought that was a really interesting way you approached this. Because it's almost like the legal system is the antagonist. That, that's kind of the feel I got from the book, that the legal system is the villain. Was that the right way to look at it? Or You know, really interesting observation and pretty accurate. I, no one has really ever said that to me, and, and, and that's true. And, and let me say, when the New York Times reviewed this, this book, the headline was Twists and Turns in a Dark, Dark Legal Thriller. And, and it's funny because I never sensed it as dark. I like to think that it's entertaining, that it's plot driven, that it has a likable protagonist. You, you hope that's the case. And, and I've never seen it as dark, nor an indictment of the legal system. I worked in the system and I think the system, 99% of the time we get it right. I know that all my brothers and sisters on the bench are good people. We try, we do the best we can. I worked with good lawyers and a good bar but it's a system that can fail. And, and I think the way that it does fail and it does become an antagonist is when the sort of familiar, the excuse that you've heard a million times is actually true. And, and the, the problem that we have as judges is you become hidebound and jaded. And I've heard this before, I've heard this before, and, and it's an eye roll. And again, as I said earlier, what if that's true? And the system is just not set up. There, there, there are sort of built-in, what should I say, not preferences, but they're, they're built-in sort of presumptions in the system 
say what you want to if you walk into court and you have a, a criminal record, that's going to be a downside. There's usually a presumption that that probation officers are telling the truth. And in this case, that didn't happen. So there's sort of those built-in moments in, in the system that make the system work that can also hamstring it. And I should ask you about writing and making this accessible too, because to me, it really goes in depth into the legal system and it gets quite technical too, but it's always really accessible um, to the reader, I think. I just wanted to ask you about the balance there. How, how do you strike that balance between, you know, your vast knowledge as a judge and what you need to kind of convey to the reader? <laughs> not, not everyone would, would suggest that or think that, that my knowledge is vast, especially is the, the, the appellate courts that have, that have sent my uh, decisions back and, and remanded them. That is, it's hard to do. And especially since so much of this book is, is, depends on sort of abstract law. And, and you need to make it accessible, but it doesn't need to be didactic. You need to make it understandable to the reader, but it doesn't need to sound like a lecture. And the best way to sort of do that is to integrate it through conversations that characters have. And I went back, I, I had several readers on this book, and I asked them to pay particular attention to that and to focus on that. Do you understand this? Does it read like black letter law or does it read like people talking? Uh, does it read like a statute or does it read like a novel? And to work on that until it becomes accessible. If you go online and, and read reviews and, and comments, there will be people who still occasionally say, I just didn't follow all the law. I like the book and I understand what happened, but that it was too technical for me, even though I have tried to translate it to lay terms as best I can. And I should ask you a little bit about the process of writing this book. Um, what, just and all your books, actually. What was your routine? How do you kind of get it done? How do you get that first draft down on paper? I enjoy writing. I get up every morning at six o'clock and I write for about an hour or two. My friend and mentor, the late Tom Wolf, we had a discussion one time and we were talking about writing and I, and I said it seems so intimidating. It's it, it, from alpha to omega seems so long. You're talking 400 pages, 350, 400 manuscript pages. And he said, think of it like this. If you sit down every day and you write a page a day, in a year you'll have a novel. And it's not quite that simple or formulaic, but that's the deal with me. And sometimes those pages are no good and you just throw them away. But I get up, I write every day. And as I, I mentioned earlier, it sort of transports me, uh, transports me to somewhere. I get to, to enter another world. Everything is, is sort of blocked out. I don't have to worry about the case I'm getting ready to do at 8 o'clock or 8.30. I don't have to worry about the motion and limiting. It's a wonderful sort of distraction for me. And now that I'm retired, I still do the same thing, although I'm conditioned after all these years to only be able to write about a page or two a day. Retirement has not made my pen any quicker. You live on a farm. Is that, is that right? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And, and I live in the country. Because that sounds kind of like the romantic ideal for a writer. Do, do, what's kind of you, what's your setup like in your office to write? I look out the wind at the pond. And, um, and interestingly enough, I think maybe water really helps writers. I just read in Garden and Gun, there was a piece on Larry Brown. And Larry Brown is my favorite writer. Evidently, he built his own pond and a, a writer's shack there. 
And he wrote a lot there. So maybe there's something about looking out at your pond that, that helps you if you're a writer. And, and do you set yourself a quota each day? And do you write every day? Or sometimes do you have days off? How do you approach that? I'm not writing now. I just finished a novel. The, the new book is called uh, The Plinko Bounce. And um, once I finish, I don't write until probably about, because you'll have to do all the edits, the copy edits, and then, you know, and, and I don't know what happens with book tour now. I think some people are back on the road, and I don't know if I will go on book tour again. But there's a lot of prep work that goes in. You know, that The publisher will keep the book in the pipeline for almost a year. And, and, and I will work on it, and I just want to be wedded to that. And, and then once it's published, I take about six months off as a little celebration. And, and that's usually book tour and and that sort of thing. And then I will start again. But I'm not writing anything now. And I think it was the New York Times that called you the thinking man's John Grisham. And I should ask you about the genre. Like, are all your books, because I really enjoyed this one, I'm going to read more. But are all your books, are they all legal thrillers? And do you have any ambitions to write anything that's not legal orientated? It's interesting that my books are sold as legal thrillers, and I've been able to dine out on that New York Times quote and several others for years, and, and I'm happy. And if you pick up one of my books, you'll see those, those blurbs on there. The truth is, if you're looking for a pure legal thriller, or let's just say a pure thriller, that's you know a Lee Child kind of book that is just plot-driven and is really just quick and fast and three and four page chapters. While my wife and I were traveling, we listened to one of David Baldacci's books and it's excellent and it is quick and fast. There is a genre of thriller and that kind of legal thriller that is very stylized and that's not what I do. So a lot of times people will buy my novels expecting that and be disappointed because you read the last book, there are riffs on everything from fashion to politics to a lot of character development. I love plot, and, and I think that your first job as an author is to entertain people, and the way you do that is with good plot and good characters, and that has to be paramount. But I don't write legal thrillers. I like to think I write entertaining books that are set in a legal background, and I don't think I'll ever stop doing that. I, I don't, you know, I, I know some writers sort of step outside of what they normally do, but I'm 62 years old, I've probably got another book or two in me and that's it. And I'll stick with what I know. And what about other lawyers that listen to the show and they're thinking about making the step into fiction and writing their own novel? Have you got any tips for people that want to get started? Yeah. As I said earlier, it's seat time. The notion that that you will just sit down one day and be inspired and write in this, this burst and something will come over you seems foreign to me and, and unlikely. That's the great thing for me as somebody who came to writing late. I was 40 years old when my first book was published. And I've gotten to meet all my heroes. I've met Frank McCourt, Tom Wolfe, Larry Brown was, was a big thrill for me. Um, and of course, since we're all in Virginia, the, um, the, the Virginia gentlemen, you know, John uh, Grisham, David Baldacci, and myself, I've met all these people. And one thing we all have in common is it's a job, J-O-B. You got to do it every day. It's just seat time. Get up, write, and make sure you let folks read it and, and listen to what they have to say. A lot of authors will tell you, I don't care about reviews and I don't read them. I read every single one. I, if it's online, I read it. If it's on Goodreads, I read it. Some of it is just silly, 
I mean, you know, you get one star because somebody didn't got a damaged book. That has nothing to do with me because the cover was torn or something. But some of them, you might pick up something that's helpful. So make sure you're, you're open to input. Well, on that note, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. And I should just quickly ask, when's your new novel coming out? It's on submission now. So it, as I said, it'll be about a year. And again, I, and I'll plug it shamelessly. It's called The Plinko Bounds. And thanks for the invite. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And thank you for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed it, please rate it on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Matt Reynolds for the ABA Journal, filling in for your usual host, Lee Rawls.